Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Today we're in the third week of a series that we've called Relationships that we're doing for the month of February. And uh, our topic today uh, deals with intimacy. So we've been kind of given a, uh, a precursor, a warning for about three weeks. Uh, there would probably be a really good Sunday to be sure all the small children uh, are uh, in with our, our kids' ministry today. Uh, and we'll kind of leave, leave that up to you, uh, yourself. Um, and older children, teenagers, I'm of the opinion they need to uh, hear about intimacy from a biblical standpoint because they're going to hear about it in the schoolyard uh, or somewhere else. So uh, we need to be sure that they, uh, that they understand what God has to, uh, to say about it. Uh, that being said, what we will deal with today is biblical. In other words, it's found in the Bible. Uh, so it's something that we should be willing to deal with uh, even in the church. Um, one of the foundational statements made right in the very beginning that God made to let us know that, that we need relationships is this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. So we're wired in such a way uh, that we need uh, someone, that we need uh, that type of intimacy and that type of a relationship. Our problem is we've allowed our culture, the world, to insert their opinion and their viewpoint of what intimacy really is all about. We've allowed the world to paint it uh, almost as though intimacy is a dirty word, but it's not so with God because God's the one that created it uh, to begin with. God even created the capabilities and the desires uh, that we have as human beings uh, when he made us. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to walk through some things in Genesis to begin with, lay a foundation for what we're going to talk about. But in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, the Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on, on the earth. How did that fruitful and multiply thing work out, you know? I mean, what does God say in there when he looked at Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and to multiply? It worked out through a God-ordained sexual relationship between a man and a woman who have been brought together before God. That's how it played out. Now, and I want you to notice something. When God first made Adam and Eve, he gave them that as kind of like a first instruction, he didn't tell them to be intellectual beings by going and learning and studying a whole lot and earning degrees, although there's nothing wrong with that, and that is part of God's destiny for human beings. But he didn't tell them that to begin with. He didn't even tell them right off the bat to spend time in prayer as spiritual beings. He did not tell them right off the bat to spend time studying economics as industrious or productive beings, or politics as orderly or civil beings, or writing stories or performing arts or dance or doing art as creative beings. That's not what God said in the very beginning. God told them in the very beginning to go forth and be fruitful and to multiply. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Somehow in the church, we have allowed things like 
nakedness or the sexual relationship to act like it's almost a, a bad or negative type thing, and it's a shameful type thing. Well, shame did not come in with God creating sex. Shame came in with sin when man chose sin. That's brought, brought shame uh, to bear upon the human race. The one flesh concept that's mentioned in that verse, of course, it deals with more than just the sexual relationship, but at the same time, it does deal with a sexual relationship. And, and we're doing error uh, to people to not biblically tell them that that is part of what's being said there, the one flesh being united as one body. Jump forward to Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, verse 1, we find this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That doesn't mean he discovered what her name was or anything like that. That is a way of biblical term to talk about the intimate uh, relationship, physical relationship. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, it took all that time to develop this. One reason to let you know we're dealing with scriptural themes. Another reason to hopefully not hopefully avoid you being shocked all of a sudden when I get to point number one uh, in the message, because it is something I think we need to talk about in the church. I think to be honest with you, because we've not talked about this enough in the church, we've allowed our culture to be pretty perverted about what their mindset is toward the sexual relationship and marriage. And that's because we failed to talk about it. So we're going to talk about three aspects of the intimacy today. Aspect number one is the sexual aspect or sexual intimacy is the first thing that we're going uh, to talk about. That one flesh concept is in Genesis 2, 24. It's in Matthew 19. Jesus referred to it in Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. Paul alludes to it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. And God intended the, uh, the intimate fellowship that we're talking about, the sexual relationship between a man and his wife, he intended that to be more than just a physical act. Why it is a physical act, he intended it to involve a very strong connection also between a husband and a wife. It's a gift from God that they can practice practice in, in a very intimate way that other people are not supposed to practice or enjoy. God designed it for a husband and wife. So that being said, let me give you a foundational principle that we need to throw out to begin with before I move on and talk about any of the other stuff. Here's a foundational principle. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually and immoral and the adulteress. So let me point out two main things that you can see right in that one verse. One, God tells us that marriage ought to hold an elevated position. That, that marriage should be upheld, that it should be considered as something that, that's honored. And that's a challenge in our culture today because we're living in a culture that's wanting to change the very definition of what marriage really is all about. We're living in a culture where people are challenging marriage, whether it be from the standpoint of, well, we don't really need to get married and we'll just have the sexual relationships anyway, or whether it be the standpoint of redefining what marriage is and talk about same-sex unions. But we're living in a culture that's wanting to kind of destroy and tear down the parameter and minimize marriage. But God says marriage ought to be held in honor. It ought to be held in a high position. I was at my uh, in-laws yesterday, Becky's mother had her birthday, and I was sitting there looking at my phone uh, just for a minute. I'd got a message from someone through Facebook, and when I first opened it up, uh, I, I happened to catch an article that maybe I shouldn't have read uh, because I, I, I wouldn't be talking about it now, but I can't help but talk about it now uh, anyway. But uh, normally I will not call 
another pastor's name, but this is a well-known pastor across America. Uh, some of you may not know him because you might not have been in the loops and things like that to ever heard anything about him, but there's a pastor. His name is Rob Bell. He used to be a Southern Baptist. I'm not sure if he is still Southern Baptist or not, but Rob Bell, a few years ago, the first thing that kind of let me see there's some major changes going on in who he is and his doctrine. He wrote a book entitled Grace Wins. And in that book, he more or less made this argument because of the huge grace that Jesus provided on the cross, everybody goes to heaven. Whether you ever admit you're a sinner and trust in Christ or not, that was what he was saying, which is universalism instead of Christianity. He has now come out and said this, that since our culture is so much accepting same-sex union, same-sex marriage, that the church doesn't change and start looking at more than just what the Bible has to say, that the churches are going to become irrelevant. Now, guys, I'm sorry, I'm not, you know, but I think something that is that big of a heresy, I need to tell you that's a heresy. Amen? And for someone to say that, you know, we need to pay attention to what culture is saying about same-sex marriage and quit looking at the Bible, I'm sorry, the Bible is where I have to look for my truth, not culture. Because culture changes moment in and moment out, we have to look to the Word of God to find out what God says about these issues instead of what culture says about those issues. So since I have meddled a little bit, I'll try and get back on, the, on topic. Second thing you can see in that verse is not just how marriage ought to be elevated, but God literally warns us that there's judgment attached to anyone that is practicing uh, sexual relationships outside the bonds of marriage. That, sex, that, that marital bed is undefiled, but anything beyond that, God is saying, is a problem. It says, let, marriage be the bed, let the marriage bed be undefiled, but God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So in other words, it's only the union of marriage that allows the union of sex to be appropriate you know, from God's standpoint. And, and before you start thinking, man, that's just some legalistic thing of God being a spoil sport, I want to point something out to you that I found a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. And here's what C.S. Lewis said. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. Basically, what he's saying is this. The sex union by itself was not designed to be by itself. There's too much of an emotional connection. There's too much else that's taking place. That's why, that's why children, that's, that's why teenagers and people that are not married don't need to experiment in that way because they're not prepared for the rest of the emotional connection that goes with it. And he's saying that it becomes a monster when you just try to focus upon one aspect and pull it out by itself. So that's our foundational principle. Now I want to give you some practical principles, some practical principles about the sexual relationship that I think is really important that the church hasn't talked enough about that we need to pay attention and and recognize. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 through 5. Here's the first one that we're going to talk about. First practical principle is this. God's provision in the face of sexual temptation. God makes a provision because there was a lot of sexual temptation. Now, in Corinthians, he was writing into a very heathenistic culture. I'll say more about that in a moment. But Paul writes these words. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
Now, initially reading that, there'd be people who have kind of taken that wrong. And they thought, well, uh, Paul must have been against marriage. Or Paul must have been saying that there's something really wrong with sex. And that's not what uh, Paul was saying at all. If you read it in context, he's writing to believers who have been saved out of the very uh, heathenistic type culture. There were temples in the city of Corinth where you could go worship and there were temple prostitutes that were available to you. It was a very sex-driven culture that he's writing to. So he's not saying there's anything wrong with sex practice in the, in the right way in the realm of marriage. What he's saying is in the light of all the sexual temptation that exists, especially in Corinth in that day and time, he's saying, and you need to have your own spouse. You need to have your own husband, have your own wife instead of giving in to the sexual temptation. God made a provision for them by doing so. Second practical principle you can get out of these verses is found in verse three and four, and that is that sexual intimacy is referred to as a right, as a right. Now that might blow some of you away, but that's literally what's said here in, the, in this passage of scripture. He said, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, a wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, there's some words that are used there in, in that verse. When, he, when he's saying give, you're giving something over. Give something over to your spouse, away to your spouse. And I'm not trying to be improper. That's just literally what the word means. And uh, the, ch- the conjugal rights is talking about, there literally talks about a relationship between a man and a woman that are married together. It's sexual in its context because of what we just read a moment ago. That's what the verses right before this have to say. So it's dealing with a sexual relationship. Once you're married, he's telling a husband and wife this. Once you're married, you don't need to consider that you have authority over your own body. Your spouse does. He says that to both, to the husband and to the wife. You don't need to think that you're the one that only alone that controls or has authority or jurisdiction over your own body. Consider how practical that is. Not just in the sexual relationship, but think about this. The moment you're married, instead of your life being all about you, from that point on, your wife, your life also needs to be about your spouse. Husbands, the moment you got married, you need to be concerned about your wife more than you're concerned about yourself. Wife, the moment you got married, you need to be more concerned about your husband than you are about yourself. There's a new relationship that's happened. You're part of one body now, the Bible said. So in essence, as you care for each other, you're actually ministering to yourself also. But we need to recognize that we don't have authority over our own body. That also includes in the sexual realm. So in other words, no head games allowed, you know? A lot of times people will couple and play head games with each other. No, no selfishness allowed. It's not just supposed to be uh, uh, about you. It's, you're supposed to be considering the need uh, of your spouse. Third thing I want you to get is this, the importance of sexual intimacy, the importance of sexual intimacy. Because Paul goes on and he writes, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, there's some value in probably walking through some of the words that's used there in the, in the original Greek in the New Testament. When he says do not deprive, he's literally saying, you know, you're, you're near someone and you're trying to keep something away from them is literally kind of what the word means. Do not deprive one another, and that's a reciprocal term, one toward the other is what's being meant by that, except, so there's an exception clause there, except for this reason. You have talked about it. He said, except by agreement. 
You have sounded together. You're sounding alike. There's consent involved. There, there's a union of the minds that's taking place. You have sat down and you have discussed it. And you have articulated with each other. You have a speech with each other. And you have decided for a set or a proper time that you will keep yourself away from each other intimately for a spiritual reason is what he goes on to say. Not because you're mad at your spouse, not because your spouse upset you and you're just not going to be involved in that type of intimacy with your spouse because they've upset you. He said the only reason you're to do this, to keep yourself from each other, is that you've talked about it, you've planned it, you realize it's for a spiritual reason, and both people are in agreement. But then he said, even if that's the case, if you vacate or take a holiday from that type of relationship in order that you might spend time in prayer, you need to come together again. And the word again in the, in the Greek means a, a, an oscillatory repetition, kind of like a merry-go-round. You're going to come back around to it. And you come back around to it. And you come back around to it. No matter how often you might say, hey, we need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time on our spiritual life. So let's focus there for a while. Even though it's for a spiritual reason, you need to come back around to the intimate relationship. You need to come back around to it and back around to it and back around to it. And God is telling us that because he knows how he made us. He knows the desires that we have, that he's given us. Because he says, if not, you're going to be tempted because of your lack of self-control. We're going to be tempted to fulfill it in the, in, in the wrong way. God knows. Remember who he is. God's the creator. Amen. God made us. Him having made us, he understands the desires that we have. God made us in a way that he did not necessarily have to. Some of you heard me joke about this before in messages. God could have, if all, the, if all sex is about is procreation, God could have made us like plants where we pollinate, right? But he did not do that. And God that designed our bodies put nerve endings and things like that in particular places. And I'm not trying to be improper with you. I'm trying to be honest with you. God designed the sexual relationship for more than just procreation. He enjoyed it for a husband and a wife to be able to enjoy each other in an intimate fashion, in an intimate way that brings about close bonding between them that other people don't experience. God designed it like that intentionally. And it is so strategic. It is so important that God says, don't. Keep yourselves from this unless you've talked about it, you've agreed to it, and as far as spiritual reason, then you need to come back around to it again. And instead of giving the idea that maybe the church does sometimes, and I'm, I'm sorry, but this is the idea I got from church when I was growing up. Sex is bad and you shouldn't ever do it, maybe unless you're going to have kids. You know, we, we can give that almost as the, the idea that, uh, you know, from from the church. And I'm sorry, but the church almost has done that. I don't read that in this passage of scripture. You know what I read in this passage of scripture? God is saying you're supposed to practice it on a regular basis because it's an important bond between a husband and wife. And the only time you don't practice it on a regular basis is because you have talked about it, you've agreed, you're doing it for a spiritual reason, and then you get back to it on a regular basis. So instead of the church betraying it like there's something wrong with a sexual relationship, we ought to really be telling husbands and wives there's something right about it. God designed it. It gives you the chance to bond with each other in a way that no one else should, and it gives you a strong emotional attachment too. And he said, if you don't do it, Satan's going to tempt you for your lack of self-control. This is not original in me. I heard it years ago. I don't even remember where. But someone has said this truthfully. Uh, Satan doesn't create anything. 
See, he can't. He's not a deity. He's not God. Satan's never created anything. So what he does is distort everything. Now, I thought about that as I studied this week. And I asked myself a question. Can I think of anything in our culture today in this world that is more distorted than the sexual relationship? More distorted than the mentality and the idea that people have about sex. And I come up with this conclusion. I don't know. I can think of anything that's being more destructive in our culture, more distorted in our culture than a sexual relationship. God designed it to bring about this close, intimate contact. Satan wants to use it to bring about destruction in our culture, and destruction in your marriage, and destruction in your life. He cannot create anything, so he takes it and he perverts it to where it's misused. In a wrong way. Why does your sex life matter? Why did God care? Why did he make us the way he did? God designed sex as a powerful force, an incredible bonding experience between husband and wife. And they now know these things that God knew to begin with because he created us. But having sex releases important hormones in the brain. Dopamine is a hormone that's the feel-good hormone. Oxytoxin, not oxycodone, is a bonding hormone. They're endorphins that are pain-reducing polypeptides in your body that they have now discovered. So in other words, what clinical, even Christian psychologists now realize is that a man and a woman married together, practicing sexual relationships together on a regular basis because of all this physical stuff that's taking place, all the hormones being released, you can actually become addicted to your spouse. Now, most of the time we think of addiction in a negative format. That's why we have Celebrate Recovery, trying to minister to people that have other types of addictions and, and things like that in the wrong way. But God actually intended this addiction to happen. God wants you to be addicted to your spouse. God wants you to have that type of close connection to your spouse and instead of looking at it like there's, there's something wrong with it. Christian author and marriage seminar leader Gary Chapman, some of you may have read some of his books like The Five Love Languages. I found this quote by him this week. He says, sexual intercourse within marriage is designed to give us a taste of the divine. Man, I thought, wow, what a statement that, that he made in, 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 that, in that one statement. So in light of all I've just talked about, maybe we need to be proactive and ask questions like, when can we have a date night? Or when can we be intimate? Because if we fail to do that, since God designed us like this and we have that need, if we fail to talk about it, plan it, protect that time, you know what's going to happen? Frustration is going to set in for one or maybe both in in the couple. If you don't talk about it, it's okay to talk about it. God gave you that desire. It's okay to practice it in the bond of marriage. But it'd be okay also to have discussions about it and make plans about it to keep from having negative feelings. So that's one part of intimacy that we're going to talk about. The second part is emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy. God designed us in such a way that we needed to talk about the physical part, but God also designed us to where we have a a social and emotional need in, in intimacy fulfilled in our life. 
I'm going to go back to a verse I've already read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That phrase for a whole fast, you could literally say glued or bonded together in our way of talking today, but it means to impinge, to cling, to adhere, to be joined, to be united with. It involves bonding together that is both physical and emotional. See, we, we have strong emotional needs also. And while I'm not pulling as many scriptures into this part of the message, what I did uh, was do a lot of research over the last two weeks, looking at what Christian psychologists, like from Focus on the Family and other places, Christian authors, have, have written about the emotional needs that we have. This sermon started out with 36 pages of content. For me to narrow it down just to where I could give it to you. I scared some of you, didn't I? You thought, Lord, we're not going to get to the home until the supper time. <laughs> but God made us to be very emotional beings. Now, while we don't, we need to be careful when we characterize people in general terms, but at the same time, generally, this is true. For men, the best way that they get an emotional need met is in the sexual relationship somehow. For women, this is not to say that women dislike sex. That's not what I'm trying to say. Or that men don't get fulfillment in conversation and other things. That's not what I'm trying to say. We're talking general terms. In, in general terms, women find intimate fulfillment in emotional, social communication realm. Now, the problem lies in this. The problem lies in when we try to make our emotional connection fulfilled in only one area. Man, if you, you know, husbands, if, if you're only viewing your wife in the sexual aspect of trying to meet her emotional needs, you're missing out hugely on a lot of other emotional needs that she has. The reverse of that is true. Ladies, if you're only trying to meet the need of your husband by the social, communicative, communication aspect of the relationship, you're missing also a major part of a social need that, that he has. So let's talk about three emotional needs of your spouse. And ladies, I'm going to talk about the men to start with, and then I'll talk about you. Number one emotional need of most men, once again, we're talking general terms, but most husbands, most men, is respect. Respect. God says this, I'll read the first part of Ephesians 5.33 in a moment. The second part of it that deals with the wife. By the way, this verse, verse 33, is at the end of a long section where Paul is writing about husbands and wives. And it's like he's wrapping everything up in this statement. And to the wives, he says this, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in other words, ladies, your goal, your mission, your target is to find a way to make your husband feel respected. It's not that he's trying to be like that. It's the way God's wired him. Men won't be respected by their friends. They won't be respected by, at work and, you know, out in, in public. People, they know they, they want to have respect. But, but by what's said here, whether the man realizes it or not, a huge hole that he has in his heart is to feel your respect more than anybody else's respect. He, he wants to know that you respect him. 
And if he feels like that you respect him and you're his cheerleader, he can take on the world if he feels like that that you care that much for him and that you respect him. Now, here's a note to the men. God told the ladies to respect you. So that's a respect that is to be offered freely by her. It is not something you're supposed to force the issue on. You understand the difference? I understand men might can try and force in a harsh way their wife to respect them. Well, if they only respect you because you made them respect you, what's the value in it? It only happened because you made it happen. So there's no real value there. Second emotional need, and I know some of you ladies are going to think, why is he talking about this again? The second emotional need of the husband is sex. And I've tried my best to get away from this, but but this is what the research of clinical Christian psychologists have come up with. And I know I've just talked about sexual intimacy, and you might wonder why in the world we're dealing with it again. Well, here's why. It's probably a It's probably a bigger thing than you realize in the emotional need of your husband. Some women may think your husband's a pervert. (laughs) Well, that's all he ever talks about. That's all he ever thinks about. Well, you know, and, and it always seems like it has to go there. Licensed marriage and family therapist and author of over 70 books, Dr. H. Norman Wright says this, For women, sex is only one means of intimacy out of many, and not always the best one, maybe for that particular woman. For many men, sex is the only expression of intimacy. Men tend to compress the meaning of intimacy into the sex act, and when they don't have that outlet, they become frustrated and upset. And then he asks the question, why? And then he answers his own question, Because they're cut off from the only source of closeness they know. Let that hang there and focus on that for a minute. It's not that he's trying to be like that. It's that that's part of the way he's wired (laughs) as a man. He goes on, he says, men are interested in closeness and intimacy, but they have different ways of defining and expressing it. So for a man, sex is a primary emotional need. Now, some of you ladies are going to say, yeah, but that's a dude that said that. Okay. That's a guy that said that man said that. All right. Here's a Christian lady, author and counselor that said this. Jill Rennick Myers wrote this. A wife may demonstrate her love in innumerable other ways but it is often negated by her rejection or lack of enjoyment of sex. To a man, sex is the most meaningful demonstration of love and self-worth. It's a part of his deepest person. How his wife receives him has a much more profound effect on him than most women realize. To receive him with joy and to share sexual pleasure builds into him a sense of being worthy, desirable, and acceptable. To reject him or to just tolerate him or to put him off as unimportant tears at the very center of his self-esteem. And then I don't think I put it on the screen, but then then she went on to say this. Think of a time when you may have hurt your husband by refusing him when he needed that intimacy with you 
and when he was trying to support you by showing you intimacy. In other words, in his mind, he thought he was loving you also in, in, in his mind, in his way of, of, of thinking about it. Third emotional need of a husband, of a man, is peace in the home. Peace in the home. I mean, saying peace in the home doesn't mean your husband thinks every time he's going to come home, there's going to be an aroma of Toll House cookies in the house. <laughs> or it's going to look like HGTV, you know, every time you come in the home. Where everything has to be in place and everything smells nice and, and everything like that. But men, whether they understand it or not, they do have an inbuilt emotional need to want their home to be someplace they actually want to come home to. In a place that actually they actually want to hang out and stay there. So they want it to be a peaceable place, not a place where they come in and right off the bat there's an argument or there's a debate or there's a confrontation. They want to be able to come in and it and it be a place of peace. So just maybe, ladies, maybe sometime today after you go out and have lunch or whatever, maybe you need to sit down with your husband and talk and say, tell me honestly and allow him to answer honestly and listen. Tell me honestly how I can help meet your emotional needs. The three primary emotional needs of a wife are these. First of all is love. Love. Where I said respect a moment ago for the husband, the same verse that said, wives, respect your husband. Here it tells us this. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Your wife needs to know that you are, that you cherish her, that, that you value her. So as I gave a mission, a goal, a target to the women to let their husbands know they're respected, ladies, the mission, the target, the goal that you have or the men that you have, rather, is to be sure that you are doing things to convince your wife beyond any doubt that you value her, that you cherish her, that you love her. And the kind of love I'm talking about is not necessarily, you know, a cushy feeling she may get from reading a Hallmark card. Or, you know, she may not be thinking about it in, in ways that you might be, be thinking about it. It, it. It's not necessarily always thinking about sex either. Matter of fact, a lot of time it may not be. Jill Riker Myers, I quoted a moment ago, also said this. Someone stated the difference between a man and a woman this way. A man gives love as sex. A woman gives sex for love. The guys, the, the love that wives need is embodied in a consistent adoration, affection, protection, and a rock-solid commitment that they know they have from you. And it's not just, see, there's more play here, more stake. I'm afraid we've blown it. <laughs> there's more stake here than just you, you loving your wife the way you should for her. You loving your wife the way you should teaches your son how he ought to treat women and love women. You loving your life, your, your wife like you should, teaches your daughters what they ought to expect from a man whenever they are dating and in a marriage relationship later. There's more at stake than just us loving them. Now, ladies, I, I gave the men a warning a minute ago. Here, here's a warning for you. I told the men not to force respect. 
You don't need to get love by manipulating love either because if you push his buttons to get whatever you want, whether it be flowers, jewelry, or whatever it is, if you push his buttons to get it and he only did it because you pushed his buttons, he only did it for that reason. He didn't do it because he really valued you and what benefit do you get out of it? It needs to be something he freely offers you. Now, guys, I'm not setting you off the hook by saying that. You need to freely offer it her in a way that she understands. Amen? Second huge emotional need of the wives is not the one that I said about the guys. You were hoping that would be true, men, but that's not it. Communication. Communication is the second biggest emotional need for ladies. They need communication. Her, a, a lady's need, a woman's need, a wife's need for communication may be just as strong as a man's need for sex. Think about that, guys. Now, while we may not be good as men, want to come home and dissect our day and talk about how our day went and everything like that and, and all, while that might not be who we are, if we would recognize that our wife may have that need as large as we have a need for sex, that tells me we better be doing something to meet the social communication need of our wives. And let's be honest about it. Someone say, you can't say the word you're about to say in church. Well, I'm about to say it. I suck at it. You? I need to work on that. Becky, I'm sorry. I need to work on that better, you know. Because they've got a need for that level of communication. Third emotional need, primary emotional need that a woman has is security. Security. She needs to feel like there's going to be a head of her house and they're not going to come kick you out of the house the next week. She needs to feel like the finances are safe with you. That she can trust herself to you and the family to you. That it's a safe environment and a safe place. She needs to feel secure that you're on her side. Last week when we were talking about it takes more than two. It takes a submissive wife. It takes a loving husband. It takes a living savior. It takes those three things to have the kind of marriage that God wants you to have. But I asked Lynn and Angie to come up and give you kind of testimony out of, out of their background, out of their life. And they share some of their struggles and everything like that. But, but Angie said something that stuck in my mind that God brought back to me as I was doing this part of the message this week. And she looked at, over toward Lynn and, and she said, no matter what else had ever happened in our relationship and everything like that, she was saying, I, I always knew that he had my back. And I saw Lynn clench his jaw, try his best to keep from breaking down crying. Guys, that's the way our, our wives need to feel that we have their back. That, that we are going to care for them and love them and provide security for them in spite of whatever else might be happening. So, wives, I encourage you, after you eat lunch, you go home, sit down with your husband and, and have a discussion. Say, how can I meet your emotional needs? Guys, you need to sit down with your wife and have a discussion with them and say, tell me how I can meet more your emotional needs that you have. Our topic is intimacy. We've talked about sexual intimacy. We've talked about emotional intimacy. And I'm going to close by talking about spiritual intimacy because this is probably the biggest thing. Because if you don't have this right, the rest of it's not going to work either like it needs to. 
In chapter 5 of Ephesians, I've already referred to a, a verse there a couple of times in Ephesians 5. In that chapter, Paul's writing about the husband and, and the wife, but he lets us know that that is serving as illustration of Christ in the church. So Paul says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So everything he was saying about the husband and wife, he was talking about Christ in the church. That was really his main point. So we need to have this spiritual intimacy with, with God. This spiritual intimacy with Christ is the driving factor in the relationships that we have. Now I'm going to read a few verses out of Ecclesiastes, and I recognize the context isn't directly dealing with marriage, but it can be applied to marriage. And it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him out or help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. And then notice this. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Apply that to the marriage relationship for a moment. The husband and the wife in Jesus. The husband and the wife in God. That makes a bond that keeps it from being easily broken. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, we're told this. We're told that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. In other words, while the Bible talks about romantic type love, and it does. I mean, read Song of Solomon for a little while. Some of you would not read parts of Song of Solomon to your children because you blush so bad. The Bible does clearly talk about romantic love, but romantic love is not the number one thing. The number one thing that we're commanded to do is to love God, to love him with our heart, to love him with our, all of our might, all of our soul. We're to love him first and foremost, because if we don't have that right, we're not going to get any of the rest of it right. If we don't have our focus upon him, our relationship with him. So with that in mind, I want to close by giving you Five tips, five steps that maybe you can take to have a stronger spiritual intimacy with God. Here's step number one. Embrace the truth that intimacy with God has no contenders. That intimacy, in, in other words, no one comes first. Nothing or, n- nothing or no one, anyone, comes before your relationship with God. John 10, 10, Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the thief, the enemy does. That's what Satan wants to do out of your relationship and out of your life. But Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. And that word for life there really talks about all the highest and all the best that we can have in Christ. Christ himself is the highest blessing for the Christian. So the first step in us having our spiritual intimacy right is this. The first step to developing an intimate and fulfilling love relationship with God is to admit that the abundant life he promises will never be found in another person or thing. You will not find what meets a hole in your heart in a relationship with another person or in any possession or trinkets, whatever it is you might try and own in this world. It will never meet the spot that only God fills. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14 lets us know this internal thing is very important to God. He says, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. 
God's very name is jealous, and he's a jealous God because he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. Step number two is this. If you want to improve your spiritual intimacy, the first thing you do is take a step into it, literally. You have to accept that fulfilling intimate love relationship with God is personal. It's personal. It's something you have to enter into. You have to trust in him. You have to enter into that relationship. He wants you to come into his family. He wants you to come to him. And that doesn't mean you have to change yourself before you can commit your life to him. It it means you can come just as you are, confess your sin to him, and he will recognize you as you come to him. You don't have to clean yourself up first. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. That's your first step. Do that, and then you build a relationship with God. Third step. You need to talk with God and let God speak to you. Now, I know I just dealt with communication that most of us men stink at a minute ago. But what kind of relationship can you have with anybody if you don't spend time talking to them and listening to them? And if you're going to have a spiritual relationship with God, you better spend time reading this Bible and allowing God to speak to you and to put his words and his principles and his guidance and his wisdom into your life. And you better spend time in prayer with him, talking to him you to improve a spiritual relationship with him. Jesus said this in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they shall follow me. You've got to hear his voice and you need to follow him. Step number four is this. You need to spend time with others who believe in Christ. That's why we have our life groups. If some of you haven't signed up, you can still sign up. They've just started to meet. Mine's not met the first time yet. We meet tonight at 6 o'clock at Bill and Crystal Compton's home. If you've not been in one yet and you'd like to come and join us, we'd love to have you. But for you to have the spiritual intimacy with God that you need, you also need to have spiritual intimacy with other believers. You're not meant to be some type of spiritual hermit where you go off and live by yourself. We need each other to encourage us, to strengthen us, even sometimes to correct each other. We need that type of relationship. Step number five is this. Be patient and realize it takes time. Intimacy takes time. You have to learn who somebody is. You have to spend time with them. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there's huge bumps in the road. Sometimes there's problems that arise in relationships with other people, and you have to work at things to make it work. Hey, also, it takes time. It takes time to build a strong relationship with God. We just did a whole series in Psalm 46 about a month or so back. Be still and know that I'm God. You want to build a spiritual, intimate relationship with God. You need to spend time before Him. Three main things today about intimacy. Sexual, emotional, and spiritual. Before we close, I I, I want to read something from Gary Small. And Gary Small, some of you may be aware of, he works for Focus on the Family. He's on the radio programs uh, about all the time. He's, uh, you know, one of their counselors, written a lot of books and things uh, also. And and I saved it to now because I, I really didn't see a place I wanted to park it in the message. But here, here's something he writes about curiosity. He says, sadly, many couples feel dissatisfied in marriage because the relationship slips into the mundane. They become accustomed with one another, and they stop being curious. And this creates boredom. 
Boredom, he said, is the opposite of true romance. Boredom involves a belief that you know everything there is to know about your spouse. (laughs) Yeah. Keep telling yourself that. Boredom involves the belief that you know everything there is to know about your spouse. But, he said, every season of marriage is different because both people keep changing. The great mystery of marriage is that you never know what's going to happen next. Not only is change inevitable, but it's also a part of what makes marriage so enjoyable. I mean, it would be boring if it was the same old, same old all the time. A quote that I didn't include in the message that I read that someone else said, it may have been Gary Smallin also, is that God intentionally made your spouse different than you. How boring would it be if you were married to you, huh? They acted just like you and thought like you all the time. But he's pointing out here something that I think is a huge issue in marriages. After you've been married a little while, you stop dating and you start being curious about your spouse and you kind of take everything as a hat. And he gave you a very theological quote from one of my favorite rock bands back in the 80s. Journey said this in a song. I get the joy of rediscovering you. I get the joy of rediscovering you. Author Mingan McLaughlin expressed it like this. A successful marriage involves falling in love many times. Always. Always with the same person. Always with the same person. So you need to have curiosity as a goal in your marriage, and you need to be curious about God and Jesus and keep pursuing your relationship with Christ. The band's going to come out, and we're going to do this thing we call an invitation at church. Last week, I invited some of you to, you know, that, that felt led to to take your spouse by the hand, come up and kneel and pray. I'm not really going to do that. If you feel led to do it today, that's perfectly fine. But I do want to encourage all of our couples here who are married during this invitation time to take your spouse by the hand and to pray about these three aspects of intimacy and to talk to each other and say, make, make, make an agreement with each other even now that you're going to talk more later so you can have the best relationship, the type of relationship that God wants you to have in marriage. That's the first part of the invitation. I recognize, as I said last week, some of you aren't married, but you may be, well, you may be one day. You need to pray about these things. I recognize some of you have been through tragic divorces, and I'm sorry that you've been hurt and been through that, but you know better than anybody else why you need to pray for people and pray for yourself about the relationship of, of, of marriage. Second main part of the invitation is this. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, He longs for you to know Him. He spread his arms wide open. He's got you engraved in the very palms of his hands where he died for you in your place, paying the full penalty for your sins. And he longs to be in a relationship with you. The Bible even talks about the church being the bride and Christ being the bridegroom. He longs for you to be in that relationship with him. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, why not today step into his open arms? Father, 
I pray that you take this time as we wait before you. That you'll speak to the hearts of husbands and wives and that you'll help them to be more knit together than they've ever been. Father, I pray that you help them to not get over knowing each other. Help them to remain curious about each other. Father, help us to understand the way you made us, the way you've wired us, and meet each other's needs. Father, I pray for couples right now. God, I, I know there might be some couples here that are struggling in some of these areas we've talked about. God, we know that's not your desire that they struggle. That's the enemy wanting to destroy and attack their marriage and their lives. Father, I pray, I pray that you give them the victory and the peace that they need in their marriage. Father, I pray for anyone in this place that doesn't know Christ. Give them the faith they need to trust in Him. The faith they need to admit they're a sinner that can't fix themselves. And help them right now to run into the arms of Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.